Hi FM presents South African politics and news with the South African Institute of Race Relations. The IRR show, independent, relevant and real, is hosted by Big Daddy Liberty and Sarah Gon every Tuesday morning from 9 to 10, promoting life, liberty and property rights. Good morning everybody on this very strange day. It's almost got an apocalyptic quality about it, and one feels one's in the middle of a a science fiction film. Um, So, as you will notice, it's me alone. Big Daddy Liberty is in lockdown. Uh, Unfortunately, he's in a new house, flat, garden, I'm not quite sure. And there isn't much internet connectivity. Uh, now, now couldn't be a worse time to be unconnected, particularly for, 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 for Sigley. He's, uh, it's, uh, he's, he's, he's the, the connected man, if I can put it that way. We come to you, um, there is so much news and yet, um, it's, it's, it's mostly bad, uh, but people are behaving very well and, uh, they're generally a consideration, but we'll deal perhaps first and foremost with uh, with that an area that uh, has displayed less consideration, shall we say. We've all seen a number of videos about police or army behaving badly towards residents in townships and, and, and in squatter camps. And I think what this displays more than anything is the fact that the rigidity of the lockdown does not and has not taken account of the fact that people living in such close quarters with with inadequate facilities and desperately in need of, of salaries in order to buy food, etc., are not really not suited to a lockdown of this nature. I mean, it, it, it's goes. With, it's like living. It's like living in my, having my whole family just living in my kitchen. You can't expect people to stay indoors. And I think it's a combination of both that frustration and the fact that people do not fully understand the situation and why, why the lockdown has been declared. So as Amnesty International says, there needs to be a less heavy hand and education, it has to be dealt with. Uh, through education. Uh, the Democratic Alliance Shadow Minister of Defense and Military Veterans, Kurbis Marais, um, has condemned it unduly and as being undue uh, force and said that while people have to require comply with the lockdown regulations, uh, in accordance, uh, 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 sorry, comply with the regulations, they condemn any act which seeks to humiliate and degrade citizens. And as a consequence, the party has written to the military ombudsman general, um, uh, Vuzi Masondo, to request an independent investigation. And I think this is the, these are the contradictions that one's going to find in a situation like this. And adjustments probably have to be made. It, we are not China, and we are probably more like Brazil, and it would be very interesting to see what Brazil does, um, given the fact that it is not adopting a full a lockdown uh, scenario. But having started with that, um, let's go to our first ad break before I continue any further. Hi FM, your station of choice since 2008. Welcome back. And before we go into a little bit more of the news, I just want to tell you about my guest who's a colleague, uh, Deputy Head of uh, Policy Research, Herman Pretorius from the IRR, who has done an extraordinary thing in, in the space of a week. 
He coordinated, collated, and contributed to a policy document that is 100 pages long in which the IRR looks at every aspect that it could of the coronavirus and its impact on the society. We analyze it, we criticize it, we praise it, and then we set out policy recommendations. And uh, he will be my guest from 2009 and see what he's done and how he's done it. But let's go on to another thing. We've had an interesting situation in that um, – a, an NGO called the Holobon Renaissance Foundation applied for direct access to the constitutional court to challenge the lockdown, in other words, to have it lifted. And I was quite uh, interested to see this. I wondered whether somebody was going to do this. Basically what they, what they were claiming was that the court was that um, uh, President Ramaphosa abused his powers when he called for the lockdown. He was violating South Africans' rights to human dignity, freedom of movement, freedom of trade, occupation and profession, and access to health care, food and water, which are all fundamental constitutional rights. Um, probably not unsurprisingly, the Constitutional Court has dismissed the application um, and ordered the organization to pay costs. It said it, the court said it had very little chance of success. So I'm not sure that anyone will easily follow up uh, to challenge the legality of the lockdown. One of the other interesting points is EDCON, which had been in enormous difficulty for some time and desperately on the verge of um, closing because the it, it just hasn't got it. It, it just hasn't it, it just hasn't uh, been able to shake off the uh, uh, the, the the effects of of a bad economic situation. And Kasatu managed to persuade the Public Investment Corporation, who manages um, the investments for all the public sector, uh, most of the public sector pension funds, to put money into avoiding retrenchments earlier in the year. But the situation has got so bad that the company has had to go to its creditors and say that they, they, they just cannot, cannot pay. Um, and this is uh, – Kasatu is now, let's put it this way, uh, now wants to uh, check it – now wants them to do something similar. I very much doubt that the PIC is going to, is going to do this. Um, so – it probably isn't wise because the PIC, given the scandals that have uh, surrounded it, have been hugely, hugely damaging to the PIC, and the PIC is going to have to be very circumspect about what it does, how it does it, and and who it's prepared to 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 support in this in this particular time. Going on is the a very 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 angry article by. Um, oh, sorry, let me go back a bit. The three of the major platinum producers and uh, American Anglo-American platinum, uh, Sibania and Implat, are all declaring the situation to be a force majeure, and the, the level of their production has has been reduced significantly. Now, given that how much mining need. Uh, how relevant and how important it is to our economy and our GDP, this is an absolute disaster. And given the fact that with COVID-19, the country and the world will be going probably into worldwide recession, whether these entities will be able to pick up the business required anytime soon is under 
huge doubt. And the, and even now, in the case of in the period of crisis, the the gold price has uh, has 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 reduced. Um, I see an interesting Israel-related story in that uh, a Haredi community in in, in Jerusalem, in Meir Sharim, uh, fought off medical personnel who were coming to test for the COVID virus, and um, one person, I think, was one person was injured, and car windows were damaged, etc., etc. Uh, this is going to be a huge test for the Israeli government because it's it's really the two worlds of religious and, and highly religious and non-religious Israel are going to uh, clash horribly. And you're probably going to see this repeated in amongst different types of groups over all over the world, but it probably doesn't come as a surprise in the context of, uh, of, of Israel. Now, while, <laughs> while we were all, all being locked down and um, sort of looking inwardly and trying to work online, an early painting of Vincent van Gogh was stolen from a museum outside the Netherlands. Um, it's called The Parsonage Garden at Nuyen in Spring, and is obviously an early work because it, it's, it's very classical in nature, and it, it's, a, it's a pastoral scene. That, but presumably, in the circumstances of today's life, it's very valuable. So somebody has uh, taken advantage of the absence of people, even though... Um, one can honestly, uh, it's, it's interesting because the, the Dutch apparently are not going into full lockdown. Their coffee shops are open and presumably other types of shops are open in the Netherlands. And, um, we just, uh, may, it's, it's just interesting to see that uh, this is the first theft of this kind and maybe we're going to uh, see more of them worldwide. No one's watching. And if anyone has seen, or look, I commend you to look for a drone shot video of the streets of Cape Town. It is certainly like Cape Town, you'd imagine Cape Town to look like after the apocalypse. There is no one in the streets. You see a car here, a car there. It's both be- beautiful, extraordinary, and rather chilling. And I commend you to, to seek it out. Unfortunately, I can't find the link at the moment. Um, but if I find it during the course of the program, I will come back to you. Paul O'Sullivan, uh, the sort of intrepid investigator, has raised a number of interesting points that, are, that I, I won't elaborate on, but more, merely uh, talk to, is the fact that however great the death rate is, and particularly in um, um, South Africa, we face deaths by usually by road accidents, by crime, um, by a, a huge amount of ill health of other types of diseases that way, way outstrip the likely um, death by uh, by the coronavirus. Or maybe not. Maybe it, it, it will completely overwhelm those, but it's got a very high bar to uh, to reach. So with that in mind, um, we'll move to our next break, and I'll bring you back with our guest, Herman Pretorius. IFM 101.9 megahertz of life. Welcome back, everybody. And uh, Herman, do we have you? Now, it seems to be very quiet at the moment. Um, what, what we're going to talk to about with Herman is an extraordinary document that the IRR has produced called Friends in Need. COVID-19, how South Africa can save hashtag lives and livelihoods. 
It was produced within a week, uh, which is an extraordinary situation. Herman. Hello. Sorry, I was just reading the title of your extraordinary magnum opus. You've become the Superman of the NGO world. <laughs> yeah, well, I've been planning this for a long while, so I'm just glad. Uh, I'm just glad it came through. I've been modelling myself on that for a while, and that's why I've been wearing my underpants over oh, my outside clothing. That's why we don't have video. <laughs> Herman, um, the IRR decided to use its research and analytical capacity to urgently search for policy solutions and proposals to guide South Africa through a time of near unparalleled crisis. That is essentially how this document opens. You were tasked with getting it all together. How did you come across, how did you decide on the, on the issues that needed to be covered? And they are healthcare, income security, social stability, financial stability, economic stability, and the balance between state power and civil liberties? Well, I think um, the, the first thing to, to understand from our perspective as the IRR was what can we assist with? What can we influence? Um, where can we make sure uh, that the correct policy approaches are taken. We are not, you know, um, doctors. We are not scientists. We can do research on that and we can understand data. But from our perspective as the IRR, it quickly became clear that where our experience really can assist in the current circumstances is to look at the socio-economic and political impacts of the coronavirus of COVID-19 um, and within the more recent context, the lockdown. So we then, that was the first, you know, thing that had to fall into place to understand where can we make a contribution. And then these fields of healthcare, uh, income security, uh, social stability, financial stability, economic stability, and civil liberties really became clear. Those are the areas that will receive the primary knock-on negative effects of this crisis, of this pandemic, and that is also where we can focus and should focus our attention to mitigate the risks, to mitigate the impact, and to make sure that we both save lives but also livelihoods. There's this fascinating discussion going, what is an essential service these days? But to understand fundamentally, for the person who has the job, whether it is a nurse or whether it is an electrician or a plumber or a cleaner or a teacher, that person is dependent on that job. For that person, their job is an essential job. And if we want to save livelihoods through this, we need to make sure we have plans to protect and make sure that our economic vulnerabilities are looked at, but also done in a way that we can emerge from this crisis as we will in a situation where the government hasn't become the banker, the parent, the doctor, the um, accountant. We need to keep our social fiber and our social community structures intact, and we need to protect our constitutional democracy throughout this crisis. And that's really where we thought the IRR 
could make a very great contribution. So essentially we're looking at two elements. The one is maintaining our constitutional rights and remaining a democracy, not being sunk into into a sort of socialist autocracy. The other thing that underlines everything, of course, is the fact that the country has wrestled with a declining economic and fiscal position for over a decade. It is yeah. in recession. Unemployment sits at conservatively at 30 percent mm. and less conservatively at 40 percent. Mm. Um, and since this, this paper was written, we have finally been downgraded to junk in that Moody's has – declared us junk, which makes us totally junk, because the other two ratings agencies, S&P and um, Standard & Poor's and, oh, I suddenly forget the other one, um, have have also declared us junk, but did so three years ago. So mm. Moody's has possibly waited too long. How do we deal with the fact that we start from literally zero? Well, you know, it's that, it's that old question. Um, your house is burning down. What's the one thing you run in to save? And, um, South Africa must realize that this pandemic, this crisis hasn't really changed any of the ideological issues that the country needed to address and will need to address in the future. The only thing this pandemic has done beyond causing, you know, um, the, 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 the economic and healthcare, um, risks and uh, regrettably the three deaths we are aware of, uh, due to the illness, the, what the pandemic has actually done is focus our minds. It is the moment of saying, right, the house is burning down. What are we running in to save? Do we run in to save SAA? Do we run in to save ESCOM? Do we run in to save our bloated civil service? Do we run in to save CADA deployment, BEE, um, uh, toothless institutions, failed uh, state entities, or do we run in to save lives and livelihoods? That's essentially the the the, the fundamental question here. Oh, we don't have much. In fact, I think you're very right in saying we have nothing. The money has run out. But we are now in a situation where we must deeply and urgently and seriously consider what are we doing with that which is at our disposal. I wrote an opinion piece a, a while ago um, in which I rather lamely uh, quote uh, J.R.R. Tolkien's wizard Gandalf, where mm-hmm. he says, um, where the Frodo, the hobbit who has to destroy the ring of power against great and evil odds, says he wished this, uh, this whole thing never happened to him and never happened in his time. And then Gandalf replies and says, well, so do all who live to see such times, but that is not for them to decide. All we have to decide is what to do with the mm. time that's given us. And that's essentially where we are. Mm. We need mm. to decide what are we going to do with what we have? What are we going to do with the time that we have? And what are we going to try and save while the house is burning down? From that, we segue into the two areas we will cover because we can't cover the entire report as we don't have enough time for that. And the first two areas, the first area is healthcare and mm. access to healthcare in particular. Mm. Um, 
that we have a situation that while the government is looking at this grandiose scheme of the national health insurance and which is both unaffordable and probably impossible to implement our healthcare environment is in our public healthcare environment that is to say is in very bad condition and so surely in a crisis like this uh, the private sector has to come to the party in a, in a in a completely different way yeah it's it's no accident that we put the healthcare section as the first section in this report it is the 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 first response that a country must consider um under these circumstances and sarah i think you you are absolutely right the healthcare each of our sections in this report starts with what is essentially a problem statement mm. and um the healthcare introduction really brings uh to the fore the fundamental failures that have been building in our public health system for the past 30 years uh we don't have enough medical personnel uh we don't have enough uh, reliable medical infrastructure we don't have enough um medicine our supply uh chains of medicine is often unreliable now in let's call it normal times these would be existential challenges a country that cannot look after its most vulnerable citizens is really faced with a crisis but i think our expectations in south africa after a century of awful government are so low that it takes a pandemic to really illustrate to the country as a whole how deep in trouble we are it, it, i mean it, it my mind jumps to the minister uh, lindiwesi sulu who amidst the pandemic achieved the wonderful you know uh, 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 objective of getting people <laughs> water and she said it's because of the pandemic and you just have to wonder a moment my oh. worth why does it take a pandemic for the government to decide you know what people should have water that um, and so the healthcare system is similar we don't have enough beds we don't have enough doctors we don't have enough nurses we don't have enough funding and the funding that is there is tragically mismanaged so within this context we must acknowledge two things firstly that there are brilliant practitioners in our public health sector that must never be denied or forgotten but mm-hmm. the skills and the efficiencies and all the necessary uh, knowledge isn't necessarily as available as it should be and that's where the private sector really comes in when tobin bake mm-hmm. 10 20 years ago said we live in two south africas um i think the amc made the mistake of thinking that's a prescription rather than a description of a problem because they've maintained two south mm. africans you have rich south africa which is no longer as racially based as it used to be the black middle class now being numerically larger than the white middle class but you've essentially got the middle class or the upper middle class and above on one side they can they can afford world class healthcare through the private healthcare sector and system and then you have the rest of the country 
who are as vulnerable as anyone in the world can possibly be under these current circumstances. And we need to realize one thing. The government must be willing to admit that in these times, if they want to save lives and livelihoods, they must surrender power. And the private sector must in these times acknowledge that they must, to some extent, surrender profit Mm. to make sure that South Africans do not die, to make sure that businesses do not die. We need to find that perfect collaboration where the state and the private sector, the government and the citizenry can work effectively together. And if there's going to be erring in one way or another, in a constitutional democracy, you must always err away from giving the state more power Mm. and always towards giving the citizen more power. If that approach is followed with healthcare, I think we can achieve things that might save lives and livelihoods. This might be the opportunity to actually understand the gravity of governing, if I can put it that way. Could I ask you just to give us some, if not all, of the recommendations that the IRR makes with regard to healthcare for, for the, for the outbreak? The first, the first uh, recommendation we make is very basic. It's that the provision of sanitization equipment in transport infrastructure and public spaces must be stepped up. In taxis, in trains, in buses, in public areas, you must simply be able to wash your hands. Now, that might be an eye-rolling refrain heard the world over, but the medical consensus seems quite obvious that that is the most basic, easiest way to protect people against this disease. So that's the first thing. A second one is to make sure that information is made as available as could possibly be in all 11 languages, in sign language, but also in non-linguistic communication displays because we have to face the fact that many South Africans who are vulnerable in these circumstances are unfortunately illiterate. But going to the more, uh, you know, the more meaty questions, we need to fast track medical studies to get the necessary medical personnel capacity available. We need to remove regulatory barriers to the expansion of medical personnel capacity in two ways. We must make sure that people who are uh, medical practitioners in foreign countries but have not yet been certified locally must be certified for a, as a matter of urgency and where possible such certification me- measures should be waived completely to make sure that if you are a Zimbabwean doctor, you can help a South African country. It doesn't matter that this board or that board or this council or that council has not approved you yet. We cannot let bureaucracy stand in the way of life-saving treatment. And the other part of this regulatory barrier removal is to make sure that those people who are retired, nurses and doctors and medical practitioners over the age of 65, can voluntarily and temporarily step back into the front lines. We need them. And currently, the labor regulations within many areas of South African society are so stringent that you can not work for the state if you are older than 65 or if you can. It is so difficult to reach that point. We do not have time for red tape now. We need to make sure the capacity is there. And then broad, more broadly in terms of healthcare, we must fast track the development of technological aids to diagnostic interaction between patients and doctors. 
simple things like language translation apps. If you have a doctor who speaks Zulu, but you have a patient who only speaks Afrikaans or vice versa, you must understand that there's a great inefficiency in your system if by the use of things like language technology, we can make sure that any doctor can treat any patient in a country with at least 11 languages and 11 official ones and many more unofficial ones, that would make, uh, that would remove a great strain on the efficiency of our testing regime as announced by President Ramaphosa uh, yesterday. Then we also must make sure that import barriers for treatment, for medical treatment equipment and drugs and pharmaceutical um, uh, related measures must be eased. We cannot, I say again, fall into red tape now when we need ventilators, when we need medicine, and there's some sort of absurd tariff or import standard that stands in the way of people getting treatment. Um, and then I think the, the last one where we can mm-hmm. – um, or the last two actually is firstly get the private sector as involved as possible. This isn't about making money. This is about getting solutions. That's the thing about my conviction of free market sensibility. If you have a solution worth paying for, people will pay for it. And now is the time to get people who have solutions to unchain their creativity and say, you can now help us get through this. And if you deliver for us what is needed, we will pay you. But we must acknowledge that now is the time for solutions to come to the fore. And then the last thing is really to be creative in isolated care units. Many South Africans, that's one of the fundamental problems we are facing in this country. Many South Africans can't social distance. Many South Africans can't go into isolated care because of our community structures. I think um, 64% of people over the age of 60 in this country live in households with at least two other generations. So we have this issue where multi-generational homes pose a risk. And for that, The government and the private sector must come up with creative ways to make sure that vulnerable people can be placed in isolated care. One of my favorite crazy proposals from the crazy sounding, but I think highly effective if implemented in the report, is let's use the national parks as isolated care facilities. They have power, they have water, they have basic infrastructure. Let's get vulnerable people there where they can be safe. Creative solutions like that. Use whatever we can to make sure lives and livelihoods are protected. Thank you, Herman. Let's go to the ad break, and on our return, we will look at the issue of income security. IFM 101.9 megahertz of life. Yes. In your introduction on income security, you quote uh, economist Darby Root, who's probably one of the country's absolutely most respected uh, economists. And he noted, with respect to the pandemic, and I quote, this is a crisis, but you must understand one thing properly. It is a crisis on top of a crisis. And the very next sentence refers to the fact that by the end of 2008-19, the number of unemployed South Africans was 16,420,000. 
I mean, that is just the most extraordinary figure, particularly given the fact that unemployment worldwide generally has dropped as it has in uh, sub-Saharan Africa. How do we, how do we even begin to tackle the outcome of this crisis when we are, before the crisis started, looking at such a abysmally high unemployment rate? Well, that is the, 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 the million dollar question essentially. We, must now make very difficult decisions oh, that the government might think is very difficult, but I think most South Africans would think are not very difficult. Um, mm-hmm. Are we going to try and save SAA that is sapping taxpayer money, that is reaching into the pockets of ordinary South Africans, making it unable for them to grow their business, to employ another person, to um, establish a more worthy credit score. Um, what are we going to do now? Are we really going to spend the precious resources we have making it more difficult for the taxpayer to efficiently use the money they've earned? Or are we going to try and save the ideological projects of the state. That's the first question we need to ask. It's that prioritization issue that we need to look at. Well, that's exactly the issue is is we've seen the ANC literally on the march to socialism and to the utopia at the end, um, which will only immiserate and impoverish people without any doubt. Is this likely to bring that up short, perhaps? Because the, the range of of areas in the economy that are in and will be in enormous trouble are so huge. It's travel, um, um, supplies of all kinds, accommodation, caterers. It, it's small, particularly small, micro and medium sized enterprises. Which uh, uh, mining chief Bernard, ex mining chief Bernard Swanepoel was highly critical that now the only gov- the government is only really now taking that issue seriously. Mm. Um, it, 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 it surely, it, 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 it's a no-brainer that whatever we have must come away from the money-sapping unnecessary SOEs to, into the economy, into the people who want to work, who can work, who need to work. Yeah. And, you know, the, the really odd thing is, if we're going to be honest about South African history, the ANC faced a very similar situation in the mid-90s when it came to power. The reality is the Fiscus and the government's books, when the ANC uh, came into power in 94 with the national government of national Mm. unity and um, the country wasn't in a good state. The finances of the country was quite poor. And the ANC had this idea that they would come into government and there would be these capitalist resources to be spent on their ideological projects to uh, build this um, national democratic revolution utopia. But reality actually kicked in quite hard. There was no money to spend. And I remember um, a Zapiro cartoon back when I thought he was really brilliant um, <laughs> with Trevor Manuel in a Margaret Thatcher wig and in a Margaret Thatcher dress with a Margaret Thatcher handbag, essentially saying, you know, um, let's not let's let's pull a Thatcher. Let's not give in to union power. Let's not 
given to massive state spending. Let's tighten our belts. Let's, as the government, make sure that taxpayers get bang for their buck. And you know what? That triggered, that triggered the gear program and it also triggered the most prosperous 10 years the modern democratic South Africa ever has ever known. Mm. If we look at 10 years of that between 1996 and 2007, the last four or five years, we consistently grew in terms of GDP at three, four, five percent. So if we're going to be really honest, the last time the ANC faced a crisis, they had the leadership of Nelson Mandela. They had the uh, government wisdom of, uh, for all his failures of Mr. Mbeki. And they had Trevor Manuel as Minister of Finance. And those three could, in the time of crisis when the country needed it, come up with a pragmatic, liberalized economic policy. And now the question is, well, we are well, faced yeah. with similar circumstances. Who's going to lead us into those necessary reforms? It, I'm not even going to try to answer that question, but in the two minutes that we have left, I'd like the IRR's um, advice as to what we should do or what the country should do, even if the government isn't so sure with regard to uh, income stability. Well, the first thing is trim the fat. Stop spending money on things that shouldn't be spent on money, well, that money shouldn't be going to in the first place. Then turn your attention to two groups of people. The middle class, who is the consumer engine of the economy and is under great strain, and the workers who need the support of schemes like UIF-based income relief mechanisms. Make these as accessible and simple as possible so that workers can have that income security so that they can survive this crisis, but also so that your middle class, the engine of any economic activity, can survive this crisis with some financial integrity so that when we reach the end of it, we can revive our economy, but an economy that has gone on a forced, unpleasant, but ultimately hopefully healthy diet. Herman, thank you very, very much as we head to our ad break and there is a very much more to discuss. We are really just skimming the surface of this report, which can be found at our, on our website at irr.org.za and I highly commend you to it um, if you've got a little while to read. Herman, thanks. I'm sure we'll have you back on this soon and uh, in the interim, let's go to the ad break. Hi FM, your station of choice since 2008. Welcome back, and we are just going to look at in the in the circumstances well, the, the likely issues we're going to discuss next week, and of course it is going to be COVID. It will be right up there because. Firstly, it's going to be a question of how do the security forces readjust to the way they deal with people um, and, and get them to obey the instruction to stay indoors, which I think is, is just not practicable. And the other thing is the fact that there's more and more coming out in the way of articles and submissions by well-respected uh, medical practitioners, economists and such like, which is starting to argue against the idea of flattening the curve, which is what the uh, what the uh, what the government is trying to do, and, and and governments worldwide are trying to do, 
and whether the, such an, uh, a process, which was how China dealt with it, will in fact be appropriate for the country, will in fact be necessary or even successful. And that, I think, will increasingly become an area of discuss, discussion and disputation. The, it's going to be very, very interesting to see how countries like the Netherlands, Sweden, and particularly Brazil handle it. The Netherlands and Sweden are very specific and, and they have homogeneous societies largely, and they are relatively small populations. Brazil is much more like us, and the, it has a large population, high levels of class distinction, and is, they are not going through lockdown. And we'll see whether that is reckless or whether there is something to that. Uh, the other thing I think there will be more discussion on is will be the our junk status. And in looking at the fact that of the BRICS countries, that's um, Brazil, Russia, uh, China, and India, or vice versa, South Africa, only South Africa is on junk status. A couple of them are just hovering above junk status, but it, it is only that, it is only us that is on junk status, and arguably we should have been on junk status three years ago when it might have made come as a real shock. Now, I don't think anyone has really discussed it, uh, or sort of in a casual way around the dinner table. This would have been unthinkable um, a few months ago, let alone a year ago. So those are the sorts of things that I think will be discussed. Um, there will be some lighter and funnier moments, and maybe the art world will see a proliferation of stolen uh, paintings appearing, but uh, such are the times that we live in, and uh, I wish you all the best. And if you get become short of, of reading material, please go to dailyfriend.co.za where you'll find a range of different opinions, contrasting opinions, podcasts, and hopefully, and, and everything from largely a liberal perspective, which means no one really agrees with each other, but everyone has something interesting to say. So on that note, please stay well, stay safe, uh, be protected, and hopefully do not get any diseases of any kind, least of all COVID-19. And we'll see you next week.